Welcome to Translating Aging, a podcast about how the science of human longevity is transforming the way we treat disease. In each episode, we bring you conversations with the researchers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders who are working at the vanguard of the field. Translating Aging is produced by BioAge Labs, a clinical stage biotechnology company developing therapies to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. I'm Chris Patil, VP of Media at BioAge. This week is the next installment in an intermittent series about the longevity sector outside the U.S. Today, we're joined by Dr. Anne Balian, the founder and CEO of Rejuvenate Biomed, a Belgium-based company that evaluates the therapeutic potential of safe and synergistic combination drugs that target physical decline to promote healthy aging. Dr. Balian has a deep background in developing drugs from bench to market in fields ranging from oncology, neurology, and infectious diseases. Rejuvenate is her first foray into healthy aging. Anne, thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Chris. Pleasure to be here. You've worked for more than three decades in biopharma, including drug and diagnostics development, as well as business strategy. Before that, you were a research scientist in oncology. First question, what attracted you to the longevity space? Or to expand on that a little bit, why is longevity important? Why do you want to be involved? And why is now a good time to get into the space? For me, it kind of happens in a more spontaneous fashion. I was working at um, Johnson & Johnson, as you mentioned already for quite a while, in different uh, departments and in different roles and responsibilities. And at a specific moment in time, my father started to suffer from age-related diseases. Since I wasn't formal, I really wanted to help him, but I saw that each time when we had one disease a little bit under control, not solved, but under control, another one popped up. As being a scientist, I, of course, wanted to understand what was going on. So I started to do a deep dive in biology of aging, geoscience, and trying to understand what was happening. Because of that, I started to focus very much on the mechanisms involved in aging. And I saw that indeed these different mechanisms can have or they can lead to different age-related diseases really depending on your weakest cells in your body. So that's a little bit how I uh, moved into the longevity space, uh, very much because of personal experience. And uh, very interesting to note is perhaps also that Rejuvenate Biomed, the initials RB are actually the initials of my father. So my company is fully dedicated to him. That's really beautiful. I also have a personal connection, having watched a parent succumb to Alzheimer's disease. And so many of the guests on this show have talked about their entry into the longevity space being motivated by a family relationship and watching somebody suffer from diseases of aging and wanting to do something about that. How did these lines of thinking lead you to found a company? You said that it was devoted to your father, but tell me a little bit about the process that led you from having these thoughts about aging to saying, you know what, the best thing I could possibly do is found a company. There's another very fun part. So from the moment that I was really being confronted with this situation, I asked my supervisor if I would be allowed to think about how would I tackle this problem. And there are many ways that lead to Rome. So I just figured out one that I thought could work. The first thing I thought of, if we want to do something in that space, it means that we need to be able to provide the product in a chronic fashion. So if you want to do something in a chronic fashion, safety, of course, is very important. So I thought, why not just start from something that is already or has already a proven safety record and then see how that product exactly works and see if it can also have an impact on the longevity pathways. So that was the first smaller exercise I did internally within J&J to look into the possibilities if this is even feasible. 
But then I thought, this is very too complex, this biology of aging, to just be impacted by one single compound. Let me figure out how we can combine safe compounds also in a safe fashion and then see if we can hit multiple longevity pathways simultaneously. Once when I did that, I came to the conclusion that actually it is possible. I went through a boot camp because having a scientific idea is obviously not good enough to set up the company. <laughs> and I was supported. Yes, that's always the thing, right? Uh, it's more than an idea. So I got supported by a lot of my colleagues from different departments, business development, finance, HR, uh, name it. It was included in there. And we did this uh, both exercise to see if it was a viable business option. We came to the conclusion, yes, it is. And it was the end of 2016 in the meantime. Then I needed to make a decision, well, do I do something with it or do I just continue with my regular job? Because I was on a rotation at that moment in time in the Netherlands. I came back from the US and to the Netherlands, then moving back to Belgium. And it took me nine months before I had the courage to leave my golden cage <laughs> and really do something about it. I thought, you know, I'm going to shelf it for a while, think about it. Like everybody, we have responsibilities, you have family, you have children, you have a great job, a wonderful organization to work in. But this thing kept pulling on me, like I need to do something about it because I think I might potentially be able to make a difference. So in September 2017, I jumped and I always compared to jumping from a rock into the water and then you hit the water and then when you come out of the water, you're quite blue because you have hit the surface quite <laughs> intensively. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And that's what also happened to me. But I swam to shore, came out, and the blue spots have been healed in the meantime. <laughs> I'm glad to yes. hear that. <laughs> I love that origin story. And you have mentioned several of the features that come up as themes when I talk to other founders who are kind of stepping away from something safe and wonderful into the great unknown of entrepreneurship. And I'm glad to hear that you're out of the very hardest initial phases of hitting the water. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not the fun part at all. So... <laughs> I want to talk specifically now about what Rejuvenate is doing, and you said a little bit about it already. The company is first identifying individual drugs that have interesting properties with respect to aging, and then trying to devise novel combinations of them that can be used to treat age-related diseases. So first of all, how does the discovery platform work, and what are the individual properties you're looking for in the building block compounds? So we start off by being very agnostic to indications, et cetera. So we really look at a whole long list of compounds that have been on the market for more than 10 years. We check if they're safe enough to give to an older population. But older, I mean above 40. Sorry if I'm offending people here. And then we can do that for a chronic, but for a long-term period. If we find these compounds, we check how they work. So that's in a separate step. Simultaneously, we have in the meantime, so we sorted off by 92 different genes that we identified as being interesting within the health span area. In the meantime, we have a feed or fetus the system with many, many more data. So now I cannot even count them anymore. We figured out there, if you need to up and down regulate specific genes to have impacts on specific pathways. That's on, on the right side, if I can call it again. So on the left side, I have now these compounds from which I know which genes they can up and down regulate 
And then we map them on top of each other, these two words. Then we see which are the different pathways that can be upregulated or downregulated in the fashion, of course, that you would like them to be up and downregulated or modulated. Then we always see that compounds can do that at different levels. So one element that we take into account to make the selection is if we can safely combine them, because of course you cannot combine every component, not every compound is able to have an admitox profile in a way that the metabolism of one is not impacting the other one. So that's a safety assessment we do in parallel. Then we check if they can have an impact on different pathways within that longevity context. And with different, we mean at different gene levels, but with sometimes overlapping downstream effects. So it sounds a little bit complicated. Well, it's even more complicated than I explained it, of course, but it's basically really checking if you can push as many buttons as you possible, but not too hard. So you should modulate them. But in longevity, it's not about switching off or switching on genes. It's about modulating them because they all have their reason to be there. That's the very theoretical, that's the in silico part. The artificial intelligence part and that's in silico setting is coming in from the fact that once when we have that combination identified or multiple combinations identified, we again take that set of genes that we can manipulate and do a cross or a bridging to a disease. In a disease, we check because multiple genes will be off or on or out in a disease, but you don't need to impact all of them to bring somebody back to a health status. So we identify the ones that you need to bring back to a health status, and then we check which ones we can influence. And that way the system is guiding us towards a specific organ. Because when we talk in traditional drug development about indications, we typically talk about organ. And that's how the system works from an in silico. That's that part. And then we, of course, check it in C. elegance if our prediction holds at the genetic level, but also on the health span level in the, the C. elegance. This is fantastic. And I'm really glad that you went in depth there because this is the core of the approach. There's other companies that describe themselves as platform companies that perform in silico analysis to identify drugs. BioAge, the sponsor of this podcast and my employer, is one such company. So I think that it was hugely valuable to hear you speak at length and in depth about what sets Rejuvenate apart. It makes perfect sense to me that aging is a polygenic event. It's something that so many pathways impinge upon. So the idea that one might have to intervene or, as you say, modulate multiple pathways in order to get a desired effect seems very reasonable. And the other idea is, and you basically say this, but I just want to repeat it to make sure I'm understanding it, because you have multiple active molecules, you don't have to hit the gas very hard on one of them. You can give some of this and some of that, and there's a synergistic effect you don't end up having to use very high doses of drugs. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of imagining this here. It's easier to modulate the desired effect without potentially risking adverse effects of other kinds that come when you're really driving a pathway very, very hard with a single molecule. I think it sounds like a great approach. I want to drill down into something that you've already touched on, which is that you've focused on, I should say, Rejuvenate is focusing on repositioning prescription medications that are already part of the pharmacopoeia that have been in use in humans for a decade or more. So at BioAge, we also love repositioning, although we've focused on in-licensing drugs that have been through phase one safety trials, but are not yet approved for any indication. Whereas you're focusing on medications that have been out there for a decade or more, 
And I would imagine that these safety records are pretty extensive at this point. Yes, that's right. Um, they are pretty extensive, so it means you can build on them not very much. It also makes that we typically do not need to do a phase 1A because the safety data are out there. You can really make the case based on the information that there is no need for a phase 1A. Coming from drug development, you always want to check it. You always want to check if that's really true. So we always will do a phase one setting, but then with the focus on phase one B. So a little bit more, a small amount going already into efficacy, but combining into it uh, with the safety. And I think we're very much aligned on our approaches. We're taking a little bit of different angle on it, which I think is only beneficial um, for the field so that we can combine all birds. The reason why we thought let's start with compounds that have been around already a little bit for a longer period is because we are concerned that within the field, you might have only one big shot, big ability to make a difference. And even if the difference is small, the impacts will be big. But if the safety is a concern, then it's done. We don't want to be bringing the field into, into that direction. So that's why we really focus very, very much on the safety aspect of the compound. And as you said earlier, when you're thinking about chronic administration, safety is particularly important. Yes, absolutely. And I think what BioAge is doing and what we are doing is extremely complementary. Yeah, we agree. And we're huge fans of your approach at Rejuvenate. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Before we move on to clinical trials, which I'm excited to talk about, I just wanted to clarify something that I've been wondering about. Given that your drugs will be combinations of existing approved prescription medications, what's the intellectual property situation? That's a, a very good one because, of course, no company without intellectual property. If you cannot guarantee intellectual property, then it doesn't even make sense to build a company. Unfortunately, that's reality. We might not agree with it scientifically, that's reality. So it's coming from the fact that uh, the individual compounds do not have an impact that can be seen or felt or dealt with, but the combination does. So we do already have granting of the IOP, so we know it's feasible. And we do have an effective granting of 20 years. So it's like, it's first similar like a new molecular entity, even though we are not a new molecular entity. And it all comes down to the fact that you have a new characteristic. That's fantastic. Yeah, it absolutely is. In the beginning, we really had to convince investors that it is feasible. Of course, the proof is always in the pudding. Fortunately, we just got the pudding served and it tastes very good, I have to say. <laughs> a way to carry the metaphor through. Yes. <laughs> Before we get to clinical trials, the step before that is something I want to chat with you about. And you touched on indication selection above, but I want to take a high-level view and speak about it a little bit more. So at both BioAge and Rejuvenate, we're developing drugs that target aging pathways, but aging is not currently an endpoint that can be used as a trial outcome. So to bring drugs to trial, we have to identify appropriate clinical indications. You talked about how your data drive you towards a particular organ of the body or system, but what are the other key considerations in selecting indications for drugs or drug combinations targeting aging? There are a couple, obviously. So first of all, of course, once when we have done the C. elegans work, we will also look at the mice work, which will provide us additional scientific data to go towards a specific direction based on the mechanisms that you will be identifying. And of course, it's also important that it's an age-linked disease because it's a little bit our strategy that we would like to show that the compound works 
and two different organs, because that will help both EMA and FDA to think about how to deal with this concept. It's very easy to say like, oh, they should help us to find a way through. I think it's a mutual event or a mutual exercise. We need to provide enough data for the regulatory agencies so that they can help us to define what's really needed in the aging space before they can create the framework for us to move into it uh, from an improvable perspective. So just as you guys are doing, I always make this comparison with, with the world map. So if you look at the world and you uh, would give a color to every country, it's a very nice mosaic. If you now would take that same approach and color the countries based on the language they speak, the mosaic looks different. Uh, very interestingly, you will have countries in different parts, different continents, even in the world with the same color. That's a little bit the same way as what we do scientifically. The countries, those are the organs. And the languages are the mechanisms. So if you know your mechanism, you can also predict in which organ you can make the biggest difference. So we take that into account to define which age-related diseases we want to tackle. Then you have the strategic approach. That's more, of course, from an investment perspective. You also want to have a specific exit point at a certain moment in time. So how can you make sure that your compound really ends up into the pharma world because we as a small biotech will bring it up to phase two, but we cannot bring it onto the market. We are not geared, we're not set up for it, and it's also not our aim. So for a partner to work with, it also needs to make sense. So do you concentrate on one specific organ because that's typically how pharma is organized? Do you concentrate on multiple organs and which organs do you think from a strategic perspective make sense for an other organization? And that's the difficult part. <laughs> that's the difficult part to think about. So for now, we just let the data gear us into specific direction. We just follow what the science is telling us. But at a certain moment in time, we also will need to make these strategic decisions as well. Let's talk about where those multiple considerations have led you first. You have one drug in clinical trials, that's RJX01, in phase 1b trials. The goal, ultimately, is to treat sarcopenia. That's a term that will be familiar to many of our listeners, but perhaps you could define it for us and tell us about its importance in the context of age-related disease. So sarcopenia, you can also call it muscle failure, skeletal muscle failure. When we age, we've seen that the skeletal muscle is deteriorating, not only from a mass perspective, but also from a strength perspective. This leads to dysfunctionality, and you see that people now are not being able anymore to go to the store, to leave their house, and the social impact is huge. It means that they become isolated, and then they become into this circle of not being able to move and not moving anymore. This is really a sad period because a lot of these people are mentally still very good, but because they are not moving anymore and because they lose now the social stimulants, also that part becomes impacted. So this was for us a very typical example of what we are looking at. We want to have functional, happy people that are living their life to their fullest potential. Percopenia is also a very complex disease and it has multiple elements that contribute. First of all, muscle cells themselves, but also the neuronal communication. So the stimulants coming from the brain 
that goes into the muscle. And that is a part of the body, which is called the neuromuscular junction, where the signal needs to come from the neuron, go into the muscle, and the muscle needs to do what it's supposed to do. On top of that, you have the portion of inflammation. So the inflammation that we see that is increasing during aging is a third component that provides disturbance. So just like general aging, sarcopenia is also very complex. That's another reason why we can focus on it. The most interesting element to it is that that's chronic sarcopenia, that there is also a form which is called acute sarcopenia, which we all know very well. If any of us ever has had a broken limb, then you know what I'm talking about. When you're in a cost, your muscle seems to be fading away. It's the accelerated process of the chronic process. So we can now study this long-term process in a very acute setting that makes that we can move forward way much faster and then uh, translate these findings. And another kind of acute sarcopenia arises when someone is, say, immobilized in a hospital bed, like they're in the ICU or something like that. You can get that really rapid immobilization atrophy of muscles that makes it very hard to PT, to do physical therapy, to get the person back into working order. And then that exacerbates all those other personal, mental health and social harms you were talking about above. The other element that I would like to add in here is in earlier days, it was a little bit more difficult to explain. But now, because of COVID, we have seen so many people that have had this long-term bed rest that were not able to move and which are still suffering very much from getting their strength back. So it's something that we now see and feel and can really pinpoint what the problem is. So if you can make any type of difference, it would be of huge impact. At BioAge, we totally agree with you. We're also in the muscle aging space. It's a big area. There's a lot of different ways in. And I think that ultimately, I have confidence anyway, that a lot of these approaches will end up being complementary to each other. And I'm really excited to see progress on all these fronts. In terms of what happens in the future, assuming that all the trials go well, in this country, sarcopenia has been kind of a tough indication to break into. I mean, possibly because it's such a complex disease. The reputation is that Regulators don't seem to like it very much. They don't like calling it a disease. And that's kind of surprising because it seems like it's easy to define, even if the etiology is complex, and it has a clear unmet medical need. Could you maybe speculate about why that is and maybe tell us whether the landscape is any different in Europe than it is in the U.S.? Yeah, it's such an interesting phenomenon. So what we see is that indeed in Europe, talking about aging, seeing aging as a condition or a biological process that you can impact seems to be a little bit more difficult. That seems to be a little bit more accepted on the U.S. side, but that's kind of a no-brainer. That's clear. We see that there's a biological process and you can impact it. We don't know yet how it needs to work from a regulatory perspective. So Copenia seems to be the other way around. So Copenia seems to be much more clear in Europe. EMA defined how or what the endpoint should be in Copenia. So that's much more clear. And that one then again on the U.S. side seems to be a little bit less clear. So it's, I don't know why this, well, my speculation is that the U.S. is more open-minded and can look better at bigger concepts. That's why they are more open to the concept of, of aging as a biological process. In Europe, we're a little bit more conservative. They want to have an indication. It needs to be an argument, and that's where sarcopenia fits into. It might have to do with a cultural difference. There's no good, there's no right. It is what it is. But I'm sure we can learn from each other. And as long as that willingness is there, I think we're fine. Absolutely. So in terms of this first trial, 
When are you hoping, roughly, to wrap up phase 1B and move on to phase 2? Well, the good of plan is that we wrap up first quarter of next year, so not too far away from now. And at the clinical trial, the phase 2 can then start six months later. We, of course, want to pull out as many data as possible out of this trial. As you know, it's a very complex trial. We are doing an immobilization study where we do a costing in people which are between the age of 65 and uh, 75. They will be in a cost for two weeks. We'll do a lot of pre and post measurements from going from muscle biops to dynamometry, MRI, ultrasound, DEXA, name it, and it's probably in there. So we can learn a lot from that. And we want to learn as much as possible also from the technical perspective, which can be an added benefit not only to the company, but also to the community on the comparisons of these different methods of measuring muscle mass and other phenomena as well. The phase two, we're currently talking about how it should look like. We have a clinical advisory board coming up next week, Friday, actually, to debate on it. Should it be an acute setting? Should it be a combined acute with chronic setting? How should it exactly look like? All the devil is always in the details. Obviously, we're going to be spinning and brainstorming a lot about that. And then uh, to the fine tuning. That's really exciting. I think next year is going to be just a fantastic year for muscle aging around the world. So that's your first trial, and congratulations on getting that underway. It's a huge deal for a company to have something in the clinic. Are there more combinations coming down the pipeline? Yes. So by the end of this year, we'll have a couple of things in place for RGX. So one, we will have defined the other indication, which I can, of course, today not disclose yet, but we're working on multiple opportunities there. So that would mean that we have those data also first quarter next year, the second indication for RGX1. We are defining RGXO2. That information we are planning to have also first quarter next year, perhaps a little bit earlier, but I want to be realistic as well. <laughs> and then on RGXO2 next year, we will be then working on the mouse uh, models and looking into the different mouse models for the diseases that we will be identifying. RGXO3, we will be working in C. elegans next year. To look at that one as well, and then we also see how complementary all the different compounds are. That's the current setup. Obviously, we would like to do even more, but we're not fundraising currently. We do have a lot of interest from investors, so we will be working with them to see if there are other things that we could do on top of what we currently have planned for. That's really exciting. And actually, your last comment blends nicely into the next question I was going to ask you on the business side, the financial side. R&D is expensive. Clinical trials are even more expensive often. And last fall, you raised 16 million euro Series B. Congratulations. Thanks. <laughs> as your pipeline grows, you know, financial resources, as you just pointed out, have the potential to become limiting. What's the funding environment like in Europe right now for a company like Rejuvenate? We've seen a massive change in the last year. Again, this is according to me, so don't... Uh... Oh, that's something that every that is like deep through. <laughs> but according to me, modest me, this is coming really through due to COVID. We have seen there so many problems, and it's becoming much more clear now that having a vulnerable population has an impact on the vulnerable population, but also on the rest of the population, young and old. And that by focusing on finding solutions for the older population also has a benefit for the younger population. The science has shown in the meantime that this is real science. This is not hocus-pocus. There are strong data, decent data, reproduced data 
that show that you can make a difference. It was a learning curve that the investors had to go through together with us. It's our responsibility to share the information with them. And we see now much more interest than, for instance, two years or three years ago. That's great. That's really exciting to hear. I think we've also seen that in the United States, where the idea that the biggest science story of all of our lifetimes, the COVID pandemic, revealed the importance of thinking hard about diseases that disproportionately affect older people and the broader ramifications of that for the rest of the population. And I think in general, also, the fact that the vaccines came so quickly informed everyone who didn't already know of just the critical importance of biotech and biopharma. And I think that that has, in general, created a lot of investor friendliness to biotech generally and to aging biotech in particular, although (laughs) on the other side, the equities markets for biotech are still, uh, you know, they're not so great. But you've talked about a phenomenon that we've experienced, I think, equally on this side of the Atlantic. I'm going to invite you now, and this is just based on your conversations with your American colleagues and counterparts, what differs about being a longevity biotech company or about the sector overall in the U.S. versus Europe? Are there differences in what's limiting for progress or any kind of differences that have crossed your mind? I think the science is the same on both sides. It's very good science, it's basic science, very well built up, which also made the very huge difference in the way that investors look at us all right now, both in the US and, and in Europe. One of the typical things, but that's actually for any biotech, not just aging itself, is of course, yeah, risk adversity. So Europe takes less risk. U.S. is a little bit more entrepreneurial. People might now punish me for this statement, but that's okay. <laughs> it's only a positive remark. It's not a good and a bad. The two worlds have come a little bit closer to each other. We see now that the investors on the U.S. side became a little bit more, or I should say, a little bit less risk at first. And the ones in Europe are becoming a little bit less risk at first. So they're coming a little bit more in the same area there. On the aging field, we see now also the easier, we want to be a global company. I'm coming from a global company. I will always be a global child. So we want to continue that route. I've lived in the US, by the way, several years. My kids still love it. So we will be a global company. So we also see that global interest. So it's not that only European investors are interested in what we do. It's also the US investors are somehow a little bit more aware of our existence and are also looking a little bit more into Europe. The other way around, I don't know. I have no idea. You guys might have a better view on that, but I think it's the same way. I think that as a North American, in particular, someone who's based in the Bay Area, we have a very particular perspective that because there's so much longevity biotech in the Bay Area, we're just surrounded by people who are doing related work we can sometimes fall into the trap of thinking, oh, this is how it is. Like, this is what longevity biotech is. And like, sure, there's something happening out in the provinces, but really this is how we define the sector. And that's just not accurate. It's not fair and it's not true. And so I always like to ask guests who are from outside of that little, you know, kind of insular community of kind of the Silicon Valley longevity biotech world, how things are going for them. So I was fascinated to hear your answer. Also related to that, I think um, another thing that we pay attention to is, of course, we're located in Europe. But we have a very international team and um, also our advisory boards are always international because we, just like you, we try to avoid that we start to look in a very closed fashion, having all the mirrors around us and just reflecting back to what we look at in in our own mirror. 
And I think that that's important to have that open view to make sure that internally you have a lot of people coming from everywhere in the world, but also your advisors should be representing different aspects, different ways of thinking, different challenges. So our advisory boards are always very interesting <laughs> because you get all these different perspectives. And it's always very good to see that we never always all agree. And I think that's a good thing. That keeps us sharp. That keeps us very focused, but also very open to input from others and make that you also can do this out of the box thinking. I think that's so important to remember just generally in life, but also in the biotech industry. It's okay to have two ideas in your head at the same time that don't agree with each other. It's okay to say, well, we're going to do this, but there's this good argument that this other way is the right way. Because, you know, in a year, you might really need that alternative perspective because the objective situation may have changed. The risk you took in the course that you actually decided on may have not paid off. And you want to go back to that other view. And it's important for advisors and leadership within a company, you know, to stick to their guns and say, this is how I feel about this. Okay, we're not agreeing with me right now, but I've made my point and it's a valuable point. As long as that's listened to, that's going to be a fertile ground for ideas that will be injected into the company in the future, that will be kept alive in conversation and, and may have value down the road. That was also one of the reasons that we were so, so happy with the appointment of Ajit Shetty to have somebody with the experiments in drug development, because we really need now to bring what we have learned from a science perspective into the clinic. But he also has this global perspective. I always say everybody that works with me is per definition smarter than I am. Otherwise, I shouldn't be working in our <laughs> company. But to have these charismatic, smart people out there that are helping us to guide through the whole world of development and the openness in the aging fields that I feel, at least, that we have. Every company is doing it a little bit differently, but we feel that there is so much space for other ways of their thinking. And I really do have a lot of respect for all the colleagues out there. There's not just one good way. We will have to do it all together. And that's so excited about it, being in a new field. So I like that a lot. <laughs> I totally agree with you. And this is a theme that's come up on this show before, that there's so much room in the longevity space and so many good, different, but equally valid ways to pursue progress in that space. The field feels like a big academic conference sometimes. Yes. <laughs> you have the freedom to just be excited for everyone else. And like, you're like, okay, you're doing it that way. We're doing it this way. We're both excited about the way that the other is doing it. We're both wishing success for the other person. It feels so much more collegial than competitive most of the time. Is that your experience? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I've been in this world, of course, already for quite a while. I won't say the number, but it's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I like so much. I mean, if, if somebody has a setback, you really feel their pain. And there are always learnings that can be taken away from anything that goes wrong. And sometimes we see that other people in the world might focus on that negative thing. But in the aging field, people always dive deep and figure out the positive side and do the learning and just pull it through. And that's what I really like. I've seen the same thing when we were developing compounds in the HIV field. It was also very amicable. People were really there to make a difference for the patients. And the patient or the subjects or the people were really central. And that's what I feel here as well. I think that optimistic note is a perfect place to end our conversation for now until the next time Rejuvenate has some news. In the meantime, I just want to say thank you so much, Anne Balian, for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. 
Many thanks as well to our listeners and subscribers. If you have feedback or suggestions for future episodes of Translating Aging, you can contact us by email at podcast at bioagelabs.com, on Twitter at bioagepodcast, or via our LinkedIn page. You can also follow our sponsor, BioH Labs, on Twitter and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time.